Well, we are almost uh, almost at the halfway point through our study of Revelation, and I have said multiple times that Revelation is intended to be a message of hope, but as we have gotten into the darker, more ominous passages in Revelation, it gets a little harder to recognize uh, where that is. Where, where's that hope that you're talking about? Where's that supposed to be coming from? Well, we need to understand that the, uh, the churches that, uh, that Revelation is speaking to faced very genuine hardships. They faced times of violent persecution. Uh, and as they read these words, they're looking for assurances. They're, they're looking for the victory of Christ. And in some ways, we have to think maybe they're hoping that these assurances mean that their struggle is going to be preempted. In other words, if you're facing persecution, violent persecution, uh, poverty, affliction, maybe even death, it seems like a really good time for Jesus to come. And, and over the centuries, whenever Christians have faced hard times, they've, they've often looked to heaven and said, wouldn't this be, th- this feels like a good time. Bring it on, Jesus. Come on, let's go. And they have to be thinking that. In, in these Christians being persecuted in the Roman Empire, they have to be thinking, when, when does this come to an end? When does Jesus restore uh, everything to order? When does he bring justice? When does he bring his kingdom? But God says, even in, even in this text, even in this vision, God keeps saying, wait a little bit longer. We're not quite done yet. Wait a little bit longer. Somehow, this vision that has ample hope for the future, ample hope for eternity, is also supposed to in- inspire hope for the present. It's supposed to get them through this moment, not to deliver them from this moment, but to get them through it, to empower them, to encourage them. And we're at the sixth trumpet. A well-worn biblical theme is that the day of the Lord will happen at the last trumpet. Everybody's anticipating this, the seventh trumpet. This, this, is, this is where things really start to turn. This is where, this is where things uh, really start to make a difference. What's going to happen at the seventh trumpet? Waiting to see. This, this series of seven is about to be completed. Waiting to see what God is going to do next. What is, what is the new thing that happens once that trumpet blows? And once again, there is a pause before the seventh trumpet. Remember, we get to the end of the six seals, and there's just pause. The action breaks before we move on. Again, here's this pause. There is intention here. This pause is here for a reason. Everybody wants to know about the events after the last trumpet. Even today, when, when we announced that we were doing a study of Revelation, probably what preoccupies your mind is what happens after that last trumpet? What happens on the day of the Lord? How does it all go down? That's our focus. 
John is addressing the seven churches, and he is actually calling their attention, not to what happens after the seventh trumpet, but he's really calling their attention to what happens just before the seventh trumpet. This time period that, that John is describing to us is extremely significant. And once again, the focus of this pause is the Christian mission. Judgment will come on the unbelieving world. That much is clear from what we've already covered in Revelation. But that's not the complete message. Because the complete message needs to include something about hope. The complete message needs to include the fact that this judgment is coming, but God would really like to rescue everyone from it. God would really like to see everyone redeemed from this judgment and not subject to it. God wants all humanity to come to repentance, to be saved. And we saw at the end of our lesson last week that this, this series of trumpets is really all about repentance. It's all about trying to invoke that repentance. And so what happens? You, you watch the natural world descend into chaos because God loosens his grip on it. You watch geopolitical uh, struggles descend into chaos because God loosens his grip. All the while demonstrating that he, he's really the one in control. He's really the sovereign one. Why does he do this? Why does he allow us to experience these consequences? Because he's trying to invoke this repentance. But we also saw from our study last week that in this scenario, in this end times piece of time, that repentance doesn't come. People witness all of this, they, they witness this chaos, they witness the sovereignty of God, and they still refuse to repent. So what's the point? What's the point of, of going through all these motions? What's the point of all of this happening? Well, this is a prophecy, right? We're looking forward to a time when basically witnessing the power of God, humanity at the end of the story, will still reject God, will still choose their idols, will still choose their empires, will still choose their sin over God, even after seeing that God is in control of everything. In other words, there's a point in time when all of this goes down and nobody learns anything. And why are we told about it? We're told about the biggest mistake that some future generation of humanity is going to make, at least we hope it's a future generation and not our generation that makes that mistake, we're told about this future mistake so that we don't make it, so that we recognize the sovereignty of God, so that we come to repentance, because this is really what the whole, um, this whole scenario, this whole narrative in the middle of Revelation is about. In this vein, John's vision really turns very much back to the present. Turns back to, to what's happening right now. What's, what's going on with these churches? What, what needs to be happening in this time? And I want to point out, there's a subtle shift here. John's perspective shifts from heaven to earth. I mean, it'd be easy to miss, but 
But everything that's been happening up to this point has been happening kind of in the throne room of God, right? And, and, and the, the heavenly temple. But now all of a sudden, John begins to relate things as if he's now standing on earth and he's no longer watching what's happening in heaven as it, as it affects the earth, but he's on the earth watching how heaven is affecting things around him. That's significant. That's important. Because as we reach the genuine last days prophecy, John shifts into this different perspective. What is the significance of that? Well, Christian people, for a very long time, have been concerned about getting into heaven. The surprising truth is that the final images of Revelation will be about heaven coming to earth. Heaven coming to humanity. Understanding that, let's read the first couple of verses of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. In other words, this message, this part of the vision, this is all coming with divine authority. The description here is very similar to the earlier description of Jesus. It leaves some details out. Some, some interpreters believe that this is a, an, a picture of Jesus. The text never exactly says that. But what we can know about this is this angel is arriving on earth with the authority of heaven, with the authority of the divine. Plants one sea on the earth, or one foot on the earth and one, one foot in the sea to demonstrate authority over all of it. is a little scroll open in his hand. This is the same scroll that we've been talking about. Again, the text is not clear. It doesn't exactly say that, but it is clearly related. This scroll still represents the same thing, which is God's will and purpose for creation and for humanity. And then verse 3 and 4, And he gave a loud shout, like the roar of a lion, when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Okay, we have multiple series of seven, right? We've had seven seals, we're working on seven trumpets, later on there'll be seven bowls, and here's this little reference to the seven thunders, these these thunderous voices that speak. And John is just about to write down what they have to say because he's recording all of this for posterity, right? And the voice from heaven says, nope, don't write that down. Seal that, seal that up. The significance here is that the seven thunders remain unrevealed. And it kind of echoes what happens in Daniel, a similar passage in Daniel where Daniel is instructed, no, you roll this scroll up, you've written these things out, these prophetic things, I want you to roll this up and seal it, because it's not time yet for that. It's not time for that revelation. Uh, the inclusion 
of this mention right here of the seven thunders is an indication that some things about this narrative, about this end times revelation narrative, remain hidden, withheld, unrevealed. So the intent of revelation, despite how a lot of revelation enthusiasts talk about it, is not necessarily to give us an exact detailed play-by-play of end times. Because a lot of the timing and a lot of the details are still withheld from us. And so we can read the signs, but we have to understand we don't have all the data. And we don't need it. Because that's not the point that heaven is trying to make. Verses 5 through 7, Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in the heaven and the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now, think about this from the perspective of the seven churches. You're reading this, you've already been told that whatever persecution you're facing now is about to get worse. And the angel in the narrative, the angel in the vision says, There will be no more delay. This is exactly the message that you're hoping for. There will be no more delay. But he also says it's not happening yet. We're at the heart of it, we're at the heart of the journey. The angel says there'll be no more delay, but guess what? There kind of is. This is uh, ironic. Irony is pausing the narrative to announce that there won't be any more delay. We have matched this announcement with this weird pause that comes before the seventh trumpet. And the angel's rather unapologetic about this. says there'll be no more delay, But in those days, when it happens, so what's going on here? What's this about? Well, our attention is naturally focused on what's going to happen after the seventh trumpet. Heaven's attention is focused on what happens in this moment before the seventh trumpet. So something isn't going to be delayed. It's not the seventh trumpet. There's something else that has to happen right now. Before the seventh trumpet, crucial events are meant to transpire. We're at the heart of John's revelation. He sends this message to the seven churches. He sends this message indirectly to all the churches and and right on down through the ages to you and I. And the message is something like this. As the church awaits Christ, Christ awaits the church. He's waiting. 
waiting on us, waiting for us to fulfill our commission, waiting for us to speak softly and to live loud, to find the hope that's written in these words, in these pages, and in the gospel, and, and in the life of Jesus, in the, in the prophets, and to live in those words and to share those words. We're focused on what happens after the seventh trumpet, but heaven is really focused on what happens just before it. For heaven, this is the climax of the story. Verse 8, Then the voice of the Lord that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The little scroll is John's commission as a prophet. And the imagery here is borrowed and expanded on from Ezekiel, who has a very similar calling as a prophet, where he's offered this little scroll and he's told to eat it, and told it would be sweet in his mouth. And the, the idea here is that what we're trying to do is trying to make God's word a part of you. I want you to ingest it. And so that it is in you, it is a part of you, and that you're going to be able to share with God's people uh, what God's word is. John is essentially explaining to us in this moment his responsibility to write all of this down, to share this vision, and share all of it. Like every judgment-based vision, and there are a lot, judgment text, judgment visions in Scripture, this vision is either hopeful or horrible. And it's largely a matter of perspective. How, how do you read it? How do you understand it? How are you coming at it? If you're on one side of judgment, it's a very hopeful message. If you're on the wrong side of judgment, it's a horrible message. And these messages are typically delivered to God's people because God's people know better. It's not particularly effective to scare non-believers with judgment it doesn't work all that well. God's people, we, we're supposed to know better. We're supposed to know what's at stake. But here's the thing. God's people, historically, aren't particularly interested in that message. They have not historically responded to it very well. Jesus said of his own people, you're, you're the ones who, who kill your prophets. They send them to you with a message and, and you shoot them down. You take them out. Here's this passage from Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel had a very, the same kind of commission, this whole idea of taking this scroll and eating it, and that's your commission as a prophet. Ezekiel has the same commission. And, and here's, here's what the messenger says to Ezekiel. This is a little bit scary. This is from Ezekiel chapter 3. 
God, God says to his messenger, when I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, and you don't warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they'll die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. Folks, the, the burden of the prophet is exceptional. Essentially what God says here is if, if I point out to you somebody who's headed for the cliff, and you don't warn them, their death is on your head. If you warn them and they keep running towards the cliff, that's on them. But if you don't warn them when I tell you to, it's on you. Common feature of the prophetic calling is the realization that most of the people you're called to warn will not have time for your message. They will not listen. They will not pay attention. They will not correct. They will not change direction. So get used to rejection. This is John's burden. There is an unsurpassed hope that these visions reveal about our future. It is unsurpassed. It is glorious beyond anything in our reckoning. But as a prophet, John also has to deal with the understanding that people are a mess. People are stubborn, they are obstinate, they are selfish, they are stupid, and they will reject all that hope in favor of seeking hope from things that cannot offer it. And so the message of prophecy is bittersweet. People will choose their worthless idols. They will worship the chaos of a world without God. And they will quite literally reap the whirlwind. Disaster for them is inevitable. And so the prophecy is sweet on the tongue, but it is sour in the stomach. There's so much hope here, but it will be rejected. Why is there so much focus then from heaven on this period of time? All the Old Testament prophets focus on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord won't come until the seventh trumpet blows. What's so important about this moment before the seventh trumpet? Well, the message is that we live as though we are between the sixth and last trumpet. That's the point of the pause. This, this is your space. This is where you exist. This is where the church exists. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And there have been various movements throughout church history and various church leaders and, and 
evangelists and televangelists and charlatans of all kind who have claimed to know exactly when that seventh trumpet would blow, when the Lord would return. They've even sometimes nailed down a date. And they do it because it creates a sense of urgency among the believers. If I could convince you that Jesus is coming tomorrow, you're probably going to live today differently than you had planned. It creates that sense of urgency. It, it changes our behavior. But the reality of the text, the reality of Revelation, is that we will not know when, but we are to live always as, this, as if the seventh trumpet is about to blow. That's the space that we occupy. In this interim, in this interim, the mystery of God will be accomplished. The mystery of God is, 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 is a common phrase that refers to the gospel. Paul uses it more than anybody else. This mystery that is the gospel. The kingdom is going to be perfected then. But here's what's interesting. The seventh trumpet blows, God will perfect his kingdom. That's, that's all him. Before the seventh trumpet blows, the mystery will be accomplished. Do you know where that happens? Here. It happens in the, in the church. It happens in the present. God is seeking to accomplish his mystery in this time frame, and that's why for heaven, it is the apex of the story. It is exactly what heaven's waiting on. We, we wait on the return of Christ. Christ waits for the church to come to life. How do you suppose that's going to happen? I know we look around us, we see a culture that's in decline. We see so many churches that are in decline, so many churches closing their door. How, in the midst of this mess, how, in all this chaos, how are we supposed to realize this ideal? How will the promise of kingdom be realized in the present? How are we supposed to live in the urgency of that message? Well, I think... This is what Revelation has been talking to us about all along. Number one, it happens by the grace and power of God. There, there are two big mistakes that I think a lot of Christians make today in thinking about what the future of the church will look like in this nation. The first mistake it comes from the big churches. Big churches that have become enamored of their own resources, of their own uh, budgets and buildings and staffing and programs and bells and whistles. And we start to think, we could do this. We could, do, we could make all this happen. We could realize these kingdom goals. And this is a fallacy because it really doesn't matter if God's not running the show. The other mistake comes primarily from small churches. 
small churches that look at their situation and say to themselves, our best days are behind us. There's really not that much hope for the future. In a way, it's equally arrogant because it assumes that the future depends on us and not on God. This is all about what he's going to do. It happens by the grace and power of God. We have to make ourselves open. We have to make ourselves ready for what will happen. But it is God who will make it happen. So it happens by the grace and power of God through a conspicuous kingdom community. This is God's grand plan that we live in fellowship and that we live in pursuit of kingdom ideals, that the church, in essence, will not fit in. We just won't look like the rest of the world. We won't live by the same standards. We'll exist outside of that, within it but not a part of it. The church will be a radical counterculture, and people will recognize that there's something different happening there. A conspicuous kingdom community of disciples prepared to suffer for their faith. Now, you can't get through Revelation without this message. Disciples are supposed to be prepared to suffer for their faith. There is a reason that trial and persecution have a counterintuitive effect on the church. Because trial and persecution are a natural filtration system. They filter out who's really ready to follow Jesus from who's not. And we have some in the church today who have come to the bizarre conclusion that grace basically means faith won't cost me anything. And there are some in the church today who believe in the truth of Jesus' words that the kingdom is so precious that it doesn't matter what it costs me. And folks, if our version of suffering for Christ is getting out of bed before 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, that's sad. That is sorry. I would not want to compare our record of trial to the record of these Christians who first read these words. We're complaining about stuff that we've got no business complaining about. Are we going to tell the martyrs how tired we are? Are we going to tell the churches of Asia Minor that it was too much for us to reach our community, too much for us to share the gospel, too too much for us to put in the work. We must be disciples who are prepared to suffer for our faith and answer for our undeterred hope.
I know that we have cultivated a, an assumption in the church that what we need to do is we need to have really effective evangelists who make sure people know the difference or what side of judgment you're going to be on and get those people to, to make a decision, make a commitment in that moment, make, make their decision, be saved. I'm going to tell you right now that more effective than anything I say, more effective than any message I've ever preached or Caleb has ever preached or anything we've ever taught in any setting, more effective than any of that is for the world to recognize that these people who live by different standards, who live in a counterculture that we don't comprehend, these people are willing to suffer for what they believe in, and they do it without losing hope. That's what drove the growth of the early church, is that in these times of persecution, in these times of ugliness, in these times of what we would think of as times of despair, the church thrived because the Christians, the disciples, were hopeful in spite of all that they were enduring. And that sends a message to the world, sends a message to our community that cannot be silenced. It's a louder message than any of my sermons. In other words, collectively, as a fellowship, when we collectively, together, live for Jesus, willing to do whatever it takes to serve Him, that's when the message begins to permeate the culture. That's, that's the message they can't ignore anymore. That's the truth that they can't deny anymore. Because the world around us is pursuing all kinds of hope that is nothing. It's nothing. And when you persecute that hope, guess what happens? It collapses. But the hope that we have in Christ is real. And when you oppress it, it only becomes more real. Jesus said, rejoice when they persecute you. Rejoice when they slander you, when they hate you. Rejoice. Paul said, rejoice when you suffer. Because suffering builds endurance and character and hope. And that's the whole message. There's a reason that nowhere in the New Testament does it say, rejoice when you're mildly afflicted. Rejoice when you're passively inconvenienced. It says rejoice when you suffer for my name. Because that suffering will bring about so much more than anything that we could pursue from life. That suffering is at the heart of this time period between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Difficult things are going to be happening. There's going to be times of tribulation. There's going to be times of persecution. But our faithfulness to God in those times of persecution is what makes the church explode with growth. Not, not just grow in a trickle, explode with growth. And why? Because it's only when our hope is tested that it's revealed as real.
It's only when our hope is tested. It's only when that persecution comes that people see their hope sticks. They want to know what it is. They want to know where it comes from. They want to know why it is. And why is it? It is because while everyone else might be living as there's no tomorrow, we live as though our tomorrow never ends.